Thank you, Richard. It is great to be here. If I can see you. <laughs> um, well, as, as you heard at the beginning, we're starting a new series to, tonight. And the last series was entitled, it wasn't that long ago, I'm sure you can remember, Big Questions. And we had such huge topics, didn't we? Like, is God good? Are science and faith incompatible? What about heaven and hell? Do all religions lead to God? And last, but by no means least, why does a good God allow suffering? These were such juicy topics, weren't they? Um, ones which maybe you've been asked by maybe a non-Christian friend or a work colleague. I only preached on one of these questions, and it was great to really wrestle with that topic. And I know that uh, my fellow preachers also, we were all quite nervous about these subjects because we wanted to get them right, because all of them need such care and attention. If you um, missed any of those or you want to re-listen, then do go back and look on YouTube for the talk at the 9.30 or listen through the web on the sermon for the 11.30 or the 6 as a podcast from your usual podcast providers. So what are we going to turn to now? Here at HTC, we spend much of each term doing series of talks on a subject or going through a whole book. But actually, for a vast majority of the Guess how many churches there are, uh, Church of England churches there are in the UK? 16,000 churches. Out of the vast majority of those 16,000 churches in the UK and the rest of the Anglican churches across 165 countries, representing 85 million people, most of them follow the same reading uh, program for any particular Sunday across the world. And that program is called the Lectionary. And that covers the spectrum of the whole Bible over a series of three years. So from now until Easter, we're going to be joining those 85 million people and follow what they're doing. 85 million people can't be wrong, can they? So let's give it a go. So this week, we're going to look at a very familiar story, a story that goes way back to almost the very beginning of the Bible. And we're going to look at the story of Noah and the Great Flood. So before I read from the ninth chapter of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, let's do a quick catch-up, a sort of catch-up of the story so far. But I want to say something before we start this catch-up, and that's a huge spoiler alert for tonight's talk. I want to let you know that the whole point of what we're going to look at today is that God is a God of second chances. So if you're here tonight wishing you could have a second chance, that you could wipe the slate clean and start again, then friends, you're in the right place. So back in Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, it all starts with God creating the most beautiful and harmonious universe with an earth beautifully created. And into this beautiful world, he creates man and woman who God loves so much and gives them all the earth and its creatures to look after it, but also to enjoy the world. Because of his love for humans too, he gives them free will. He gives them this to choose to either follow God or not follow him. They choose not. And after this, pretty much everything starts to fall apart. In fact, this is uh, in the Bible called the fall Humans choose their own way to go against God. 
And so, as this selfishness enters the world, so does murder. We see one of Adam's sons, Cain, killing his other son, Abel, in chapter 4. Things go from bad to worse. Humanity is spiraling out of control over the next four chapters, ruining God's world and ruining each other. The Bible tells us that God is stricken with grief and out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one human, that's Noah, and his family. Noah collects all the species of animals in a giant ark to survive the great flood, to be able to start again after 40 days of flood. God gives humankind a second chance. We pick up the story as the flood recedes and Noah's ark lands on dry land and God meets with Noah. If you find it helpful, um, do open your Bible at, I think it's page 10, if you've got a church Bible, or do use a Bible app. That's Genesis 9, and I'm going to read from 1 to 17. Genesis 9 says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the, anim- of the earth and on the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground. And all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that is its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an account. I will demand an account from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an account for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of my covenant. I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and, I will be the, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and of all life on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now as I was studying this passage, 
a passage which immediately could seem as an ancient passage and one which we may wonder what relevance does it have to us in 2024. I was reminded by those words from Paul as he wrote to Timothy, as he wrote, every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. And so what can we learn from these 17 verses that I've just read from Genesis? Well, I think that it is so much, actually it is so current, even in this passage that's probably over 3,000 years old. I think in this passage, God is teaching us about three different relationships that are so vital for us to live well today, to have joy in its fullest, and these are these three relationships. Firstly, our relationship with the earth. Secondly, our relationship with all the people of the earth. And thirdly, but by no means least, our relationship with the Lord of the earth. So firstly, our, our relationship with the, um, the earth. And our passage starts with God making a promise. What, a Bible, what the Bible here calls a covenant. Now a covenant, what's that? Well, think of it as a promise on steroids. This is a promise from God, and God's word is good. Now, covenant is such an important concept in the Bible, but I can't do it justice in this short talk. But God's promise, God's promise always, always, his covenant is always connected with salvation. Here is the first of God's covenant recorded in the Bible. And he promises to save the earth from ever having a flood like this again, ever being wiped out again. God promises a second chance. And look who he makes the promise with. It says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature. He promises not just humankind, but every living creature God is covenanting with his whole creation. The sin that humans brought into the world affected all of God's creation. And sadly, we continue in our selfishness as individuals, as communities, as a country, and all humankind, we continue to scar the world. Recently, Claire and I have been watching, I don't know whether you've been watching this, but that brilliant series called Chernobyl. Chernobyl tells this escalating, terrible story of how through the brokenness of one ideology, a, a nuclear power plant just north of Kiev exploded and polluted much of Europe with radioactive waste. A man-made disaster that actually could have been thousands of times worse, but nevertheless will affect the area of Chernobyl for tens of thousands of years. Now, this is an extreme of how we scar the earth. But almost more insidious is all our little acts that each one of us does every day that just add slowly to the burden the planet has to cope with. And I know in even saying this, I am being so hypocritical. This should challenge all of us. God is talking about ecology right at the very start of the Bible. This is a green agenda, a divine manifesto. 
Christians should be at the heart of the campaign to look after this fragile planet of ours, actually of his. Sometimes we may feel that it's hopeless. What difference can an individual make or just one family? But as one food retailer's logo goes, every little really does help. Secondly, our relationship to all people. Now, when I started to look at this uh, account in the Bible, I decided to include those seven verses at the beginning, which actually is quite a difficult read. And the reason is that God here states something so important, and that is how vital it is for each of us to care for each other. And when I say each other, I mean every single type of people however different they seem to be from we are, from how we are. Firstly, in our passage, God reiterates what he has said to Adam. He says to Noah and all his descendants, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And frankly, if our ancestors hadn't done that, none of us would be here today. <laughs> but we should take this within the context of our relationship with earth, as we've already spoken. But God goes on, and before he even gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, God talks about the preciousness of low life. And God says, I will demand an account from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an account for the life of another human being. Fundamentally, this means that we will be accountable for how we treat both animals and other humans. We should care for both both are God's creation who warrant our care. This is why Christians should be involved in organizations who fight for justice. Christians have always been involved in these types of organizations. 200 years ago, William Wilberforce, an MP and also a Christian, who would have looked at this passage in his parish church in Hull, in the north of England, all those years ago, fought against slavery picking up the work from other Christians before him, like John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, um, whose life was actually totally challenged and changed by following Jesus. John Newton was a slave trader himself, but became a vicar and campaigned against slavery. Right up from those, that point 200 years ago to today, where organizations like one of our mission partners Christian Solidarity Worldwide, and they campaign for all people across the world to be able to be free to believe what they want, whether that is Christianity, Islam, Hindu, or any other faith, or no faith. They campaign for all people, not just Christians. God gave us the free choice to believe in him or not. We as Christians should fight for people to be free across the world to have free choice. And then thirdly, we've looked at what this passage says about our relationship with the earth and with all people. Last, by no means least, is that this passage teaches us, teaches us about our relationship with the Lord of this beautiful planet. This is not a relationship that's purely academic, but this is and can be a true, deep, and intimate relationship that is made possible by what God does for us and because he adores every single one of us. Now Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist minister, who was an amazing preacher, 
based in a church in Southwark in South London in about the same time as William Wilberforce was around. And his sermons are actually still studied now by Christians across the world. And in one of his sermons, he was preaching on this same passage. And he put in his mind, he really tried to ponder what the rainbow could be teaching us. It says in verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The first thing that Spurgeon notes was that so often, like the rainbow, like the rainbow only appears on those stormy black sky days, quite often we only see God's grace in tough times. We only notice his grace then. Often it's when things get really tough that we see his grace. Even though he lavishes his grace on us so much of our time, often when things are going really well, he is lavishing us so much that we don't even notice. This is my experience. When things are going really well, though I know in my head that it all comes from God, I fall back to often subconsciously falling back to that attitude that, well, it's me, I'm doing all right, and it's through my own efforts that things are going well. But really, it's the opposite. God is lavishing us with good things. But in the tough time, that's when I really know I need him. And it's so often when I see his grace. The other fundamental thing that Spurgeon pondered when considering the rainbow, and he looked at this, these verses really carefully in the passage, was about the rainbow and how it was the word for rainbow in the original Hebrew. It's actually the same word for bow as in bow and arrow. And of course, this is the shape of the rainbow. So why not use that word in Hebrew? If we understood Hebrew and read this passage in the original, we would immediately get this bigger, deeper meaning. As people who understood Hebrew, this is what we would have pictured in our mind's eye. Just prior to the great flood, God was stricken with grief. He could have just got rid of all his creation at that point, and yet he didn't. There was a remnant that he saved in the ark. He had a rescue plan. Now we have to understand that God, and we need to go to the other end of the Bible, God describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. He's at the start of time and the end of time. He knew what was to come. He knew that saving humans and his creation was going to mean that a time would come when there would need to be a new covenant. He knew that people would again choose self rather than him. That this new covenant would involve God himself being the solution. That God in Jesus would need to form a new covenant with each of us and die in our place. As Spurgeon pondered on the rainbow, it dawned on him that this war bow was aiming up, not down. It was aiming up at God himself. If that arrow fired, it would hit God, not down on all his creation below. The rainbow reminds us that the ultimate second chance comes from that bow pointed at Jesus, who willingly took our punishment. So although the rainbow has become a symbol for so many different organizations, the first and original use of the rainbow was and is for God's people.
for us today. Every time we see a rainbow, my hope is that we remember all that Jesus has done for us, taking the arrow himself, and that whatever trouble we are going through or will go through, we can recognize that God is with us. Even in the toughest storms, there is a rainbow reminding us that his grace is always there. Amen.